There he is. is. That's terrific. Oh man, I'm sorry, guys. You know they got this horrible new. They got this horrible new Skype thing. Between being an interventional cardiologist, working with Perfuse, uh, 300,000 Twitter followers, and somehow getting to all these conferences, I mean, I don't know how you have five minutes to even try to get on Skype. (laughs) (laughs) And painting every one of your colleagues whenever it comes to your mind. Well, yeah, let's do this. I'm Todd Fredericks, Assistant Professor of Family Medicine at Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, and this is Rotations. And today we're uh, happy to have Dr. Michael Gibson. I'm giving over to Nisarg Bakshi, OMS2, to give the panel a, a, a shout-out and start the interview. Yes, hello. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, my name is Nisarg Bakshi, second-year medical student, uh, and we're very excited for our show today. We have uh, lots of fantastic guests. Uh, first of all, we have Dr. Michael Gibson. Uh, he's joining us from Harvard to talk about Talk a little bit about his practice and how uh, his art influences that practice. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Gibson. Thanks, Richard. Thanks for having me. Of course. And we also have Nestoria Esposito here to talk about her work as a painter and, and how she views healing uh, in, in the context of her work. So thank you for joining us as well. A, a, a lecturer here at Ohio University. And a lecturer here, yes. 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 She's <laughs> teaching future artists and current artists. Thank you for having me. Yes. Great to be here. And we have one of my colleagues, uh, Stephen McNulty, who... He's actually a week away from taking his boards, so we appreciate him taking the time to come in and talk to us about his work as a fine art photographer and uh, how he got involved in medicine through that. It's a welcome break. Thanks for having me. <laughs> of course. So, Dr. Gibson, let's uh, start out by talking about um, your background and current practice. Tell us about what you do. Well, I'm an uh, interventional cardiologist uh, here at Harvard Medical School. I do a few different things. I uh, obviously care for patients. Uh, doing interventions, but I also, uh, you know, work in the acute care clinic, you know, like the emergency room walk-in area for cardiovascular disease, and obviously take care of patients after their procedures. Uh, So I'm a doctor, but I'm also uh, an educator, and uh, for 12 years now, I've had the extraordinary pleasure of working with about 2,200 people on a site I created called WikiDoc. It's like Wikipedia, but it's for medicine. Uh, it is copyleft, meaning that anyone's free to take the content and redistribute it, use it any way they see fit. If you are studying for the boards, we have 750 board review questions that my son and two other people here at Harvard wrote. They're pretty tough questions. I don't think I could answer any of them. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Yeah, and, and, you know, they have metrics, how many got it right, how many people answered different things, so that's available. And um, obviously, I'm a researcher, and I, I spend probably the majority of my time running large international studies of, you know, 10, 15, 27,000 patients at, say, 850 hospitals around the world in 43 countries, have led now over 120 uh, trials like that worldwide. So drugs that you hear about on TV like Xarelto uh, 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 or all the drugs we use, like Cath Lab, Prazogril, Clopidogrel, Ticagrelor, Integralin, uh, Agristat, Epsiximab, all those drugs I uh, led many of uh, the studies was intimately involved in their development. So. I really uh, am one of the lucky people that gets to practice medicine, but study clinical medicine at the same time while I'm doing medicine. Well, well that's incredible, and that's just an amazing amount of stuff to be involved in. Uh, what motivated you to pursue medicine in the first place? 
uh, I think it was just an interest in science and, and obviously I like people and the humanities. So it seemed like a good fit. When I went to college, I didn't pursue the usual course. I, I did something called um, this unique program at the University of Chicago. It was called ASHAM, and it was the first year they created it. It was you studied the arts along with the sciences. And so a lot of my time was spent on art classes, humanities classes, music classes, and a minimum a minimal amount of time uh, was spent on the sciences. Uh, so uh, I decided to kind of have this dual kind of approach very early on in my career, mostly because I do love the arts and uh, had grown up in an art family with my mother being an artist and being a painter. Uh, and I thought that was an important part of my, not just career, but a big part of my life. Sure. And, and when did that interest in art develop? Was it at a young age since your mom was a painter? Yeah, you know, I guess, you know, these days everyone's moved uh, to non-solvent kind of paint. You know, you can't smell the turpentine anymore, but uh, maybe there's a health hazard. But I grew up, you know, back in the days where you smelled the turpentine and the paint. And anytime I go somewhere in a, an art community where I smell turpentine and paint, I feel like I'm back at home. Um, and so I grew up with that and, you know, I always watched my mom go to classes and stuff and it always struck me she was worse after she went to these classes. <laughs> I just, I think, you know, I learned probably just kind of teaching yourself and exploring and making mistakes is probably much better than someone standing there criticizing you. And I promised myself I was never going to enroll in formal classes. Although I do go over to the MFA here, Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, and mostly just to go around the museum and get to draw all the things in the museum to learn to draw better. But, you know, even when you have instruction, I don't know, how can anyone really teach you to do this stuff? It's really experiential, and you really have to just do it to really kind of learn what works and what doesn't work. So uh, that's the way it's worked for me. Sure, and, and as an art educator, Laura, do you want to comment on that? Um, well, I would have to say that I, I identify with that very much. I mean, one of the reasons why I started teaching art was because I felt like my, my education had failed me, to be honest. You know, we were having this conversation when I first came in here off air, um, like, what do the students really learn in art school? And I get that question often, including from students. And really, they just need an environment that's safe and supportive um, for them to develop their practice so that they can um, have, you know, bring their unique insights to um, broaden the scope of, of what we understand about ourselves and a larger humanity and make real contributions. Um, if everybody gets churned out of a, a program making the same work, using the same technique, I, I see that as a failure. I agree. I think early on, you're it so much early on is how to paint and once you get to the technical part the bigger issue is what to paint and you know the creative act is so much different than just the technical act of uh, painting but um sorry sorry to interrupt oh no you're okay we see a lot of technically astute art uh coming out of our program but rarely do we see actual art because it's a training environment so when I get into right. the museums, I feel like, you know, my eyes are just sucking up uh, art or any other, you know, sort of cultural environment where, you know, you see, you see art, you know, there's definitely a difference. 
That's a really interesting point. I've actually always considered myself a, a technician rather than an artist uh, because I never, I was never classically trained as an artist. I was self-taught and I had, I had some great mentors. I studied under some famous photographers, but I've never taken a photography class in my life. Um, so I really like this discussion. It actually kind of build my ego a little bit. <laughs> Steven, you yeah. actually, your work got you interested in medicine. So can you talk about that a little bit? That's right. Yeah. I, uh, I never had any uh, grand designs to be a doctor. This was not on my to-do list whatsoever. Um, I was quite happy as a photographer. I was a, a globe-trotting international photographer. I split my time between uh, my gallery in Ohio and then uh, I studied biology over in New Zealand and kind of bounced back and forth. Um, and then one year I was back in New Zealand. I had just gotten in on Friday, and on Tuesday there was a massive earthquake that destroyed Christchurch. So I was there through that whole aftermath. Um, and all I could do as a photographer was document what was happening. Um, it wasn't like 9-11. There weren't 50 world-famous photographers there at Ground Zero when it happened. Uh, I was really the only one. So um, my work went out on CNN and NPR, and it's what kind of got a spotlight for the catastrophe. Um, and so that I, I, I'm happy that that got a response and we got a lot of rescue workers in from Singapore and Japan and Australia, but I personally couldn't do anything about the people who are hurt and injured and dying in front of me. Um, and then a month later, the tsunami happened in Japan. So I flew up there to respond to that. Uh, and again, I was really just a documentarian. I couldn't help at all. Uh, and then finally, uh, when I got home from that trip four months later, I lost a close friend uh, just to a random act of violence. And all of that together made uh, photography seem kind of um, simple. Sure. And do you still, you know, you're still a photographer. And do you still consider yourself that documentarian or have you kind of changed your purpose a little bit? Um, I would say I consider myself more a documentarian now. That's mm -hmm. taken a, a, um, more of a precedence in my work now. Um, I made a living more as a landscape photographer, making pretty pictures uh, for mass consumption to sell in galleries and museums. Um, not many people want to buy that picture of a, of a catastrophe scene, you know, but those are the stories that are worth telling, I feel. Um, and so when I first moved into this uh, line of work, I actually applied to the army and I wanted to be a conflict doc and a conflict photographer and marry the two together. Um, and now I'm moving on to the idea of building clinics overseas so that I can uh, develop a rapid response team and respond to uh, humanitarian crises, but then also document it uh, as a photographer. Sure. And, and Dr. Gibson, I'd pose the same question to you as well. What Do you try to serve a purpose with your art? Like, is there a deeper meaning that you try to create when you paint? Um, you know, I don't know. That's a great question. I'm... You know, I think some people paint because, or photograph. I used to be a photographer, fine art photographer as well, using big 8x10 cameras and had a black and white darkroom and learned a lot about composition and everything and moved on over back into painting. But, um, you know, I think for me, it's almost like some people have an addiction to working out. I have to paint. I just don't know any other way without doing it. So not quite sure why I do it. I think some people who are artists feel that they have to do it. They don't know any other way. What does that workflow look for you, Mike? I mean, when you're, you got a busy life, when do you find time or is it something where you can do small bits? I mean, I recall you commenting on uh, a work that took you some time where you were adding oils and scraping them off. How does that workflow look like as you do your artwork? 
in, in the midst of everything else you're doing. I mean, you just graduated a son from Harvard. I mean, you got all these things happening. How does that work? How do you find time? Well, I think for me, some things are exhausting. Some things are effortless artistically. And uh, doing the four-year work was exhausting. And, you know, it's not one of those, the easy things, frankly, are the are the kind of photorealism kind of things, those things that people like the most, frankly. The tougher things are the things that are more artistic and, you know, are just dabs of paint. My favorite painter is Anne Gale, who's just a modern impressionist uh, and really is just using little dabs of paint to capture the light. And there's optical blending that's going on. You know, you get close to it and you can't tell what it is, but when you stand back, you can see what she had put together and putting together something that uh, really requires that kind of optical blending is completely different than a just a straight up highly blended painting. So that takes a lot of emotional energy. I often don't have the energy to do that. And when I do, I do something really easy, you know. Uh, so, but every night I paint, uh, all weekend I paint. Um, so I, I make sure it's part of my daily uh, life. Yeah, so going back to purpose, just for a second, uh, Lori, can you talk about the, the purpose that you try to achieve with your art? Well, um, one of the things that is interesting to me about this conversation is where, you know, you can sort of see the artwork kind of separating itself from life, like the stream of life versus like becoming just completely tangled up in it. And I'm very interested in where art and life become entangled, almost to the point where you can't really identify firm boundaries between one and the other. And I and that's what I feel like I'm hearing from Gibson, Dr. Gibson here, is that um, he's he's recognizing that there's that that idea of effort, you know. Um, and where do you find time? Well, the antidote for that is integrate it with your life, make it so that. It's, it's answering to and listening to the stream of life, the moment, um, and, and let it sort of flow. You don't drop everything and make art. You're making art while you're living your life. Um, and I'm also even hearing you say that quite a bit, and I was thinking about um, the importance of that art, not as a commodity necessarily, or, or you know, it's great that people can take pleasure from the things that we make, but as artists, we're our primary um, audience um, as producers of the work and it may not play a pivotal role as a commodity or presented um, you know sort of objects to an external audience it may stay extremely important and valid simply for our own experience of making it I think that's an incredibly powerful point and as a, as a photographer um, not even as a documentarian but just as a photographer one of the hardest things to do what you can spend your whole life trying to achieve is capturing the truth. Um, making a pretty picture, I found, is actually quite easy. Uh, but making a true photo document is, it takes an, a, a lifetime to achieve. Um, and I would refer to somebody named William Eggleston, who has kind of founded his entire, his own um, school of photography called Egglestonian Photography. And his, his photographs are decidedly unpretty. Um, they have almost a, a, a noxious color palette, but there are no truer photo documents than, than Egglestonian photographs. Um, and I've tried and failed many times <laughs> to, try, <laughs> to try to take an Egglestonian photograph. Sure. I agree. You know, I think it comes down to connection and, you know, the concept in photography is the notion of equivalence, having the viewer 
experience the same feelings that you felt at that moment when you clicked the shutter. And I think both in photography and in painting, I go for that sense of equivalence. I really had done a lot of landscape and abstract and blah, 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 but I keep coming back to people. And, you know, at the end of the day, every great iconic picture, whether it's a photograph or a painting is a nude. It's a nude of that person psychologically where they reveal themselves to you, but you're also revealing yourself to them because you're creating that kind of connection. And um, it's really a shared experience. And I always like to say that the photo didn't, I didn't find that photo, that photo found me. And, you know, I crawled through the fence to get out to that deserted car and that alley and I still have the scar and, you know, but I had to go there, you know, because the car made me go there. It compelled me to go there. I guess now that I think more about the reason I do it is for that connection. It really makes me almost move to another level emotionally or it's almost like a high, you know, of having that kind of connectivity. And I, I look back at who I paint and what I paint. It's usually with people I have an intense connection with and someone could ask me to paint them, but if I don't have that intense connection with them, uh, I'm not going to be able to do what I want to do, which is have that very deep connection. So then does forming that connection, um, like you're saying with the people that you capture, do you notice yourself doing the same thing with patients at all, uh, allowing them to kind of expose themselves to you, or is that a, a different uh, beast entirely? Entirely different beast. Um, but I do find being a photographer and a painter makes you a much better visual athlete uh, in looking at things and noticing things that other people don't notice. And in my research, I used to paint uh, angiograms, and I made all the young people who work with me paint angiograms. We'd have parties, and I'd make them all paint. And, you know, it makes you, you know, my mother always said, once you paint a cloud, you never paint a cloud the same way again. And, you know, it makes you look at things differently when you have to paint it. So. I agree. I mean, I think uh, <clears throat> it's, tr it's a transformative experience, and in the least, at least it should be. And, um, I think making art can be a powerful empathetic act as well. Um, and there's a power relationship when you're dealing with portraiture, you know, between the artist and the subject of some kind. It may be different, you know, if you're being, if it's a, con uh, a consignment, you know, you're hired versus you know, painting your child. Um, but uh, I, I can't help but think about connections between receiving and perceiving medicine you know, dialogue um, between um, doctor and patient and, you know, the artist painting their subject and wanting there to be um, a dialogue, a back and forth there um, that results in a greater understanding of each, you know, that the human to human relationship. Yeah, I think you do, you do learn to, you know, when you paint people, you learn so much more about micro expressions and that people may not pick up on otherwise. And I think you're very cued into that. But as a doctor, I think the doctors in the room know that we do have to put up that kind of um, detached kind of concern, because if you get too engaged with a patient, you become overly emotive and you, your decisions might be not as objective as they should. So whereas that's okay in art, um, I think you have to be concerned, but 
not get overly emotionally invested in a patient unlike a family member or a subject in a painting. I can definitely identify with that as an art educator with my students. Sometimes too much empathy can result in um, faster burnout. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad Absolutely. you mentioned burnout. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because that's a huge problem with, with uh, physicians nowadays. So I was actually going to ask, uh, you know, speaking more generally, do you think it's important that physicians pursue these creative outlets, whether that be painting or filmmaking, uh, making podcasts, whatever that may be? Uh, do you think that's important for physicians? I don't even know if it has to be creative. Anything that gets you away from medicine is really important. Um, medicine would consume you. Your patients would consume you. The administrators will consume you. The electronic medical record will consume you. All of it will consume you unless you put some boundaries in place. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think what I was told when I was young, and I think it's true, you will only be as great of a doctor as you are able to suffer along with your patients. But if you suffer too much, you burn out. You have nothing, no gas in the tank. So it's a very delicate thing where you have to care. And But I think being compassionate is a little different than being empathic. I think being compassionate and having the appropriate concern for someone and their outcomes is different than feeling the pain that they're having as, say, a cancer patient. And while I think it would be noble to feel all their pain, I think you'd have to be a saint. I just don't know that you could survive if you always did that. And you certainly wouldn't have enough gas in the tank to have enough energy for your family when you got home. Dr. Fredericks, do you want to comment yeah, on that? I, I, I frequently ask students, both in medical school interviews as well as in clinic, what is your passion? Because I think doctors that tell me that their passion is medicine scare me uh, because they never get enough distance from the profession to see it in a different way. And if you don't look at things in a different perspective, you're going to miss the forest for the trees. And that, that sounds kind of I, fuzzy in the way I say that. But it's really important for me to have people around me, nurses for that matter, anybody that sees the problem in a different perspective so I don't miss things. And so the term recreative, right? We think of recreation, well, okay, we're going to get on a jet ski and go blast across a lake. Well, no, recreation is recreating, right? How, Dr. Gibson brought this up, how do you fill, put gas back in the tank after it's sucked out of you? And so it is very important to me that we cultivate in medical students, I don't care if they go out and run, anything that's not, like Dr. Gibson was saying, not medicine. You get away, you clear your head, something where you feel at peace at the end of the day and say, okay, it was a bad day, but now I feel better. Um, get some hot food in my stomach, and now I have something left, gas in the tank, so to speak, to go back in and see these people. Because as much as you try not to be empathetic or you try to remain detached clinically, it's impossible, I think, for a conscientious physician to do that completely. And I think ultimately you care about people. That's why you do this. And so it will suck it out of the bank account if you're not careful. Um, and I, I like, uh, Dr. Gibson, if you have a few more minutes to spend with us, we're going to break and separate this into two episodes. Uh, give us a few minutes, we'll clean it up, and then we'll come back, and maybe we can talk more about uh, impact of this stuff within education. Yeah, and absolutely. Physicians. This has been a fantastic discussion, but we'll have to continue on more next week. But, uh, thank you, Dr. Gibson. Rotations is the weekly podcast of all things medical and is part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. Rotations is a product of the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine and the Scripps College of Communications. Rotations is hosted by Nisarg Bakshi, produced by Todd Fredericks, audio engineered by Kyle Snyder, and video edited by Brian Clow. Rotations is co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and even a few people we pull off the street. 
Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve the rights to content. You may use Rotations content under provisions of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without the express permission of the content creators, and you must cite Rotations as a source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments or suggestions, and you can contact us by emailing us at rotationspodcast at gmail.com, tweeting us at rotationspcast, or by visiting mediaandmedicine.com and putting rotations in the subject line.